Hello, welcome to Ignorance, the science podcast about what we don't know. I'm Stuart Firestein from Columbia University. And I'm Leslie Valsell from Rockefeller University. Today, we're so excited to have a conversation about animal minds with Diana Reese. Diana is a professor of cognitive psychology and director of the Animal Behavior and Conservation Graduate Program at Hunter College. She spent her entire career in the field watching animals, especially dolphins and elephants, think and behave. Diana, welcome to Ignorance. Well, thanks, Stuart. Leslie, thanks so much for having me today. It's just, I think this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about all of this. So, Diana, how did you ever believe you could learn anything about how animals think? For me, I I got into this whole field from perhaps a very different point of view. I was always interested in science. I was always interested in communication with animals because I thought when I was a kid, I was communicating with my dog. And I was, and we do communicate with our pets. With dolphins, it's quite a different situation. They're about as different from us as you can possibly get in terms of body form, in terms of evolution. We've evolved in totally separate domains. They're totally aquatic. We're land-based animals. They're so different looking in terms of their body form. But like us, they have large, complex brains. Like us, they learn their vocalizations. And there are lots of other things we've been discovering that make them a lot more like us than we might have thought. My real interest beyond that is, in what ways are they also very different from us? And I'm always intrigued by the probability or the possibility that perhaps we're not seeing the nature of their real intelligence just because of our differences. What if they're doing things and we just simply can't understand it because it's so different than what we know? And I guess this this brings up the fundamental question of how how do you ask another animal what what it's thinking? I think Franz de Waal uh, wrote a book that asked, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you actually ask a dolphin what it's thinking. One of the studies that I did many years ago, this was back in 2001, was to ask a question, what happens if you put a mirror in front of a dolphin? You know, mirrors are really an interesting research tool to work with. They're really simple. They're relatively inexpensive. And they let us provide dolphins with potential information. We present a dolphin with a mirror and we look at how they react when they first see a mirror. Would they react in any way like the way we act in front of a mirror. We recognize that there's an external representation of ourselves in the mirror. And we use mirrors as tools to examine parts of our body we can't see. We watch ourselves move in different ways. And we used to think this was uniquely human. But in the 1970s, another scientist, Gordon Gallup Jr., showed that our closest living relatives, the great apes, also shared this ability with us. For about 40 years, there was a lot of speculation that, oh, it's only the great apes that are going to show this because of our evolutionary connection. And again, there were even ideas that, well, great apes would show this because they have opposable thumbs like us, and somehow that was linked with intelligence. Well, what about dolphins that are really different than us? Would they show that same ability? They have big brains like us. They're highly social like us. What happens? So basically what you've shown is that dolphins have joined the club of those organisms that have one of the seven deadly sins, right? Vanity. Yeah, the narcissist problem. Is that where we are with this? Well, they're not applying lipstick in front of the mirror. (laughs) 
But, but you never gave them a lipstick. We actually marked them with lipstick once. It wasn't a good mark. That's the next phase. So once they show this self-directed behavior, again, they're using the mirror as a tool to view themselves, which may seem trivial to people because we do it so readily. But, you know, humans don't realize, young children don't start showing this until they're between 18 and 24 months of age. And it really takes a good deal of cognitive processing to understand that that external representation is you. And to be aware that you can see yourself in a mirror is not shared by many animals on this planet. So once now you you know that they have some sense of self, what's the next question you ask them? I mean, this this podcast is supposed to be about questions, about what science questions are, but, but what's the question to them? One of the next questions that came up after that was, how does this emergence of self-awareness relate to other aspects of their cognitive ability? After we did this study, several years later, one of my students in my lab, Rachel Morrison, and I did a second study asking, at what age does this emerge and how does it emerge in relationship to other cognitive abilities? Mirror self-recognition, interestingly, starts emerging with their growing social awareness, their growing motor skill, uh, sensory motor development. They're what we call, here's a big word, proprioception. Say, try to say that a couple times fast. Proprioception, which is the ability to track your body movements, being aware of the movements of your body in space. And um, without that, it's, it would be very hard for an animal to understand that's itself in a mirror without knowing what you're doing with your own body. What we found, interestingly, was that young dolphins that we tested at the National Aquarium actually showed the emergence of self-directed behavior at the mirror, self-recognition, even earlier than children. Children show it earlier than apes, but dolphins were showing it earlier than kids. Now, that doesn't mean they're smarter than kids. What it suggests is that their whole course of development is happening at a much more escalated rate. I mean, you're a young dolphin. You got to hit the water running, or I should say, hit the water swimming, or you're not going to make it. You have to keep up with the breathing of the group. You have to learn how to stay with your mom and the group. They're very precocious. We mentioned a little bit about the concept of vanity. Of course, if I'm looking in the mirror, I'm checking myself out. I'm just wondering the first time that a dolphin sees him or herself in the mirror, do you think that that changes how that dolphin views him or herself relative to the other dolphins? Like, oh, I'm slimmer. Or I'm better looking than, than the other <laughs> members of my family. Yeah. You know, I wish we could, I could answer that. You know, to, in order to answer that, we'd have to be able to have a conversation with a dolphin. That gets us into this whole other, the whole other world of decoding. How do we go about deciphering, decoding what other animals do and being able to enter into a kind of a conversation and ask them questions? Right now, it's really difficult. And there have been a few attempts in the past that have been really these pioneering studies. So this gets us into this whole other set of questions and this whole realm of the unknown, which is how are the other animals communicating? It's really interesting because several scientists in the past have tried to give the what we call artificial languages or artificial codes to dolphins or to apes or to birds so we can communicate. And because we're having so much trouble deciphering their own signals, this is another path to understanding or to communication. Let's build a shared code. 
So Diana, if we believe that animals are thinking, how do we get into the animal mind? Yeah, I think it's a really provocative question. If we can find ways of giving animals more choice and control and more of a voice, I'd sort of say that I try to partner with the dolphins when I work with them. I try to get ideas and I'm trying to give them a way to communicate what they want, what their interests are. That's to me a real breakthrough. So many years ago, you can imagine this was 1983, we built an underwater keyboard for dolphins. Imagine you're underwater and you're a dolphin. You're underwater, you you have this keyboard in front of you and you touch a white triangle that's in the middle of the keyboard. What happens is you hear and somebody gives you a ball. That's your favorite toy. And then you might do it again. You touch it again, but this time it's in another position, but it's that white triangle. And again, you hear and you get a ball and you can do whatever you want with it. And then you touch a different symbol. It's an H-shaped symbol and you hear a different whistle. And the person standing behind the keyboard puts their hand in the water and tickles your belly. You also like to get a belly rub. We created a keyboard that would let the dolphins touch what they wanted to. And then when they touched those different symbols, they got different things, different contingencies. So certain visual forms, they heard a different whistle for each shape and they got a different reward, a ball or a rub or a ring or a float. The dolphins really seemed to enjoy this. They were fed. I never would work with a dolphin that wasn't fed and had a full belly because I would not wouldn't work with want to work with children who are hungry. And they had toys all the time. But right before we put the keyboard in, we took out the toys, and then we gave them a thirty minute session with this keyboard. It was interfaced by fiber optic cables to an old Apple II computer. This is how long ago it was, an Apple II computer. I'm not sure the computer was up to this. The dolphins may have been. Uh, Well, yeah, we could barely keep up. I mean, we were barely able to do this. And then we had this thing. This was so cool. It was called a vocoder. So that when the dolphin hit a key, the dolphin heard the whistle, and I in my headset would hear what I had to give the dolphin. So I would hear ball, ring, rub in this really horrible computer voice. And I would also hear what was what the dolphins were doing in the pool. So, you know, this was like a sci-fi scenario, but what we found was the dolphins showed us so much. They did so much more than we have ever expected. Now, let me just back up for one second. So I forgot to tell you guys that the dolphins use whistles for, in their communication. They echolocate, which is a kind of sonar. So they get sort of exquisite images, we think. They can see with sound, basically. And they use a variety of different kinds of calls, but they they use whistles and a very complex set of whistles when they communicate socially. So we created, with computers, computer-generated whistles that were different than the whistles the dolphins were doing themselves, but they were within the time and frequency range that could be easily imitated by dolphins. So it was sort of like a dolphinish in the in the dolphinish language. Exactly, but different than their own. Okay. So it's like if we were going to give us new human words that we could reproduce, we just hadn't heard them before. And we had studied the development of these two young dolphins with their moms for the year prior to us giving them the keyboard. Anyway, to cut to the chase, the dolphins very quickly started to imitate the sounds and they did it with great fidelity. 
And in fact, what they did was they did it very much like the way babies start imitating human sounds. Sometimes they did what we call segmentation. They broke the sounds up. Sometimes they imitated the very end first, then put the whole sound together. They showed babbling in their own development, like human kids do. Wait, wait, so the dolphins were doing things like Pischetti and things like that? Yeah. They broke the sound up in different ways. It was fascinating. They showed what we call the recency and primacy effect. So when they first started doing the ball sound, that sounds like... They did the very end first. The very next time they did the beginning, they put sort of the richness or timbre in the third time. And the fourth time, it was a perfect rendition of ball. But they did even more. They started to make associations on their own between the sounds, the visual forms, and the objects. So they would come up to the keyboard and they would whistle the ball whistle and then hit the ball key. They never whistled ball and then hit the wrong key. They also started using what we called facsimiles or their own imitations of these sounds while they were playing with the right objects. We would hear coming from the pool and record the ball whistle, not from the computer, but from the dolphin, and they'd be playing with balls. Or they would be whistling a a ring signal while they were playing with rings. And in the second year of a two-year study, they actually started combining ball and ring in one context in a new game that they had invented, which was playing with balls and rings at the same time. It's, it sounds goofy to us, but it's a dolphin game. What can I say? So Diana, what are the kinds of things that come out of playing these games? Let's say someone breaks the rules, humans or dolphins, what happens? We had one day where things really got screwed up, where again, all they see is the keyboard. They have to hit a key to get a sound and we forgot to turn the speakers on. Dumb us, right? This was really stupid. And what we got that day was more vocal production. They were imitating the sounds at a much higher rate than any other time. And, you know, when we looked at it, we thought, they're trying to tell us something here. Hey, hey, I want my ball. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, it's often in these errors where you see these really interesting things happen. It makes sense when you think about it, but it's, it's unexpected. Well, that's the best kind of science, of course, when you when you screw up somehow or another and then they show you something that you never expected before. I mean, what you're talking about, remarkable as it all sounds, also sounds like it must be just the tip of the iceberg, that they pick this up so quickly that it immediately brings to mind a dozen, a hundred other questions about what they could do if they were given the chance. Can you get further glimpses? Can you get a deeper glimpse into their minds? Well, that's, thanks, Stuart. That's that's really what propels us onward. You know, you get one glimpse and then you just, your mind starts racing. How can I make this better? How can I ask other questions? How can I give them more choice and control? How can I bring them in to some form of communication with us? And right now I'm working on a, a project I'm really excited about with my wonderful collaborator, Dr. Marcelo Magnasco at the Rockefeller University. He is a biophysicist and a neuroscientist, but very interested, again, in cognition with dolphins. And we've been doing some studies where we've gone further than we could ever do with the keyboard. We've created what we call the D-pad. And this is a large, interactive, underwater touchscreen for dolphins, if you can imagine. I knew it had to be going. Yeah, what can I say? Now you're going to ruin the whole dolphin world. You're going to bring the internet to the dolphins. It's going to be fake news. The hottest dolphin gift this year is like their own D-pad. 
they want that for their holiday present. Yes. Well, we were lucky because we we developed this and we were very fortunate to have funding from the, both the National Science Foundation and help from the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Family Fund for Strategic Innovation. Over the years, we were able to develop this. We did some pilot testing thanks to the National Aquarium in Baltimore, and it works. The first day, we presented two male dolphins, Foster and Bo, with this touchscreen. Remember, they're non-handed. They've never seen any kind of technology like this. We created a dolphin app that we called I know this is sounding strange, but we did. We created a dolphin app called Whack-A-Fish, not Whack-A-Mole, but Whack-A-Fish, to see if we had moving fish on the screen, if they would see it and touch them, just to make sure that the screen worked. It was a way of us calibrating the screen with the dolphins, because it's not a finger touch. It's actually the beak or their rostrum that has to touch the screen very lightly. I need to know what happened to the Whack-A-Fish. Well, Foster, actually, uh, the youngest, he was about nine at the time, he stopped on a dime as soon as the screen came up, hit every fish. And this was remarkable. Immediately the first time? Yeah. The first time? I couldn't have done that. I mean, I guess it's like you hand hand a toddler an iPad and they're all of a sudden like investing your money, right? It's very intuitive. This was immediate. And again, you can go online if anybody wants to see it. If you look up dolphin touchscreen, you'll see Foster up there doing that. It's posted. And it really was remarkable. The first session where he did it, he actually was about a foot away, a little bit, maybe about a foot and a half away. And he touched it with his melon. That's the sort of the top of his head. And he looked at it with his eye and touched it with his melon each time. The second session, he was touching it with his beak or his rostrum. And that told us a great deal about their visual acuity as well, which we don't know very much about. But I have a question, Diana. So whack a fish, fish, of course, dolphins love the taste of fish. What if you have like whack a ride on mower, like you have just have a picture of a lawnmower or something. Does, yeah. does it matter what it is that you show them? Yeah, that's a great question, Leslie. So what we did is we did the whack a fish a couple times and then they got bored. Okay. They touched it in two sessions. Then we tried little squid-like creatures. Didn't show much interest when they were going vertically. Um, we tried them horizontally. So this may have been novelty, but maybe not interesting enough. And then we did a few other sessions. I think we have to find just the right stimuli to work with them. And that's where we are now. And another set of studies we did was to give dolphins videos to look at, to see what's of interest to them. So we gave them, one of the doctoral students in my lab is working on this for her thesis, uh, Jennifer Savoy, is we gave them short clips of dolphins that they knew, dolphins that they don't know, people feeding dolphins, fish that are just moving in a pool. And we're looking at their viewing times to see what interests dolphins. We're just in the analysis phase. But what's interesting about this for us is we immediately saw that they show a huge amount of interest in when there is something on the screen as opposed to a blue screen control. What we found is that they're incredibly interested in watching other dolphins, whether they're they're dolphins that they know or unfamiliar dolphins. And again, this is the beginning of trying to find ways of asking them to show us what their interests are and then incorporating them into our future touchscreen approaches. Right now, we're looking for a home for this touchscreen. And because of the virus, um, as so many of us are doing very different things than we've done before, we're teaching our courses online and we're not working with dolphins actively now. 
But you will be. So you're sort of running like dolphin focus groups here. Is that it? <laughs> dolphin focus. Yeah, exactly. It's giving us a chance to really analyze the data and think about the next steps, but we're not face-to-face with dolphins at this point. So as Leslie mentioned in the beginning in the introduction, you you also do some work in the wild, uh, in Bimini and I guess other f- field areas where you're able to observe large groups of dolphins in the wild. But I mean, that must be extremely difficult because what you mostly see is a dorsal fin or an occasional dolphin that surfaces for air and comes by you and, and you don't want to interfere with them, presumably yourself. So it's always from afar and then hard to identify them. I mean, where are we with field studies? Can you do anything in the field with these animals? When you're in a boat, you can be quite disruptive if you're trying to record dolphins. Dolphins will often be interested in, they're very curious and they'll come around your boat. So you're kind of disrupting what they're normally doing. We're trying to record their sounds, their vocalizations and their behavior and be invisible at the same time. So how do you do that? Well, a drone is a really good solution. So we'll keep our boat downstream away from the dolphins and then we'll send out the drones. We locate the dolphins and we start recording for like 15 minutes with the drone from above. When you're looking at this footage, you feel like a disembodied entity floating above. They don't see us there. And then we can record what they're doing and see things we've never been able to see before. It's quite wonderful and very promising. And then from a distance, we record their sounds. So one can imagine a future here now where you combine the keyboard work with the wild animals and then deliver packages by the drones. (laughs) Right, you can deliver the ball and the ring and all the other things by drones, right? We're talking about Amazon delivery here? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So it seems like it's a super high-tech setup. Again, like you're following these animals in the field, collecting terabytes of data. You have video data, the drone data, the audio data. I'm just curious, what next? What do you do with that? How do you tell which dolphin sound corresponds to what other dolphin sound? How do you take this beyond just a movie of a pod of dolphins swimming around, just to be blunt about it. Yep. So this is it comes to the heart of the problem. This is the what we call the source attribution problem. Who is vocalizing and when? This takes us back to decoding again. How can we come up with what I like to say is a Google Translate, a type of Google Translate for other species so we can decode? Wouldn't that be amazing? And the other is these interfaces for creating interfaces for dolphins, for chimps, for an octopus, you know, for your dog or cat. Imagine having your dog or cat be able to hit a button and say, I want out at a certain time of day. You know, they could overdo it. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. Right. It's the last thing <laughs> I'd want to have. <laughs> but, but if you used it sparingly, it would be amazing to give your animals some voice because they do communicate with us, as I said in the beginning of this. But what if we could really track, how does that match? Are they really asking for that preferred ball? And it could get public into all sorts of cool citizen science. Get your kids engaged. They can actually do these citizen science projects and we could put it into big databases. But this seems to me to say that we're clearly sharing this planet with other minds, not just other animals, but other minds. And what can we know about those minds? And what should we do about that when we do know about them? When we understand that that there are other animals that have a sense of self, that there are other animals that have uh, desires that mean something to them. 
This is an essential issue. When we start learning more about the other minds and their abilities, I think people will increase their empathy for these animals. Once you start caring, you're much more likely to do things to protect them, to tell politicians, we want to preserve these environments, to talk more globally so there's a spread of concern, a spread of empathy. I mean, that's, that's sort of this dream. Even the way we use our language to talk about animals, you know, when I'm as a scientist, I was corrected many times when I would call a dolphin he or she in a paper I would write, and they would say, no, it should be an it. And I didn't want to make he or she an it. I wanted to say this is a male or a female. I remember I did a paper many years ago where it became apparent that the very language that we use may affect our thinking about those others. You know, if we say he or she, it, it conveys a sense of agency where it objectifies, makes us think about them as objects. So as scientists, it can profoundly influence how we see these other animals and how we communicate about them. And even the kinds of experiments, it may constrain or inspire the kind of experiments we do. All right, Diana. So you're here on the Ignorance Podcast. We're celebrating ignorance. So what is there left to learn in the world of dolphin biology and cognition? What, what are you dying to learn? So much. I mean, I think we know so little, really. I want to understand how they're communicating. Do Are their vocal signals uh, semantic? Are they meaningful? Are they referring to different things? If so, what are they what are they communicating about how are their signals organized when we hear whistles we see that they're whistles that will look like they're slightly similar to another whistle but with a different ending again do they have a grammar how does that work with their behavior that's that's a huge question about decoding so i think we we are really completely or close to completely ignorant about the organization of their own signals. And again, we have to be able to localize that sound and, and look uh, at how these dolphin conversations go. And in order to understand that, we have to be able to say, this animal's saying this, and this animal's saying this, and track the sequences they're using along with behavior. So that's one big one. Another one would be, what are their social lives like? What would it be like to be in the day of a life of a dolphin? What is it like to be a dolphin? It's an essential question. We're starting to get at some of that case by case by using drones and sort of tracking them as much as we can. But we're really, again, in this state of ignorance at this point. There's, there's so much out there. You know, one of the things that always comes to my mind and one of the things that I find intriguing is the idea of what if we ever have an opportunity to meet, let's say, other intelligences from elsewhere, extraterrestrials? Many years ago, I worked with a SETI project, and I still know lots of those folks. And I said, you know, we have a great training ground here with large-brained other creatures like dolphins and chimps to really see how good we are at decoding. What would it be like? Would that help us decode or begin to communicate with extraterrestrials? So I wanted to turn the conversation over to just the greater impacts of the work. I think we're in this dark age where scientists are viewed as political or there's this incredible skepticism about science and scientists that, that none of us has, has ever encountered. Scientists used to be respected. We had authority. So what do you say to people 
who ask you, what are you doing? What are the greater impacts of this work? You're scuba diving in Bimini. What, how, how does this actually help humans? I'm very involved in dolphin welfare as well, which I'd love to talk about because I think we really have to get global protection for these dolphins. So much of what I do and my colleagues that I'm working with, uh, we're trying to do is take the science and what we're gleaning from the dolphins and because they don't have a voice and speaking on their behalf to try to get them more protection. I think the more we can learn about what the needs are for animals, we're gonna learn a great deal about ourselves as well. Several years ago, I was at a meeting of the AAAS, and they were talking about pollution off the east coast of the United States and the west coast. And they were seeing wash-ups of pinnipeds, sea lions and seals. And they were looking at neurotoxins in the brains of some of these animals. That's telling us that we're putting in toxins into the water. Those animals are eating fish that we are also eating. These are the canaries in the coal mine for us. By understanding what's happening physiologically, biochemically to these animals, by looking at behavior, it's gonna tell us a lot. But I think that also there's the basic kind of behavior that we wanna do that's quite important of understanding that there are other minds, that these animals do deserve protection. It's not just about us 24 seven. We share this planet with other species. And as a scientist, I think that the more we can learn about them, the more we'll care about them. I, I, I have to admit, I mean, the, the, the awe and wonder of believing that there are these large communities of mines roaming around the seas and other places on this planet is just tumbling and awe-invoking, I think. This has been remarkable because there's so many questions left hanging, but that's what we want. And when you come back, you have to tell us what questions the dolphins have for us. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? So Leslie, that was a pretty exciting romp through everything we don't know about how animals think and the fact that they do think. And we're sharing this planet with a bunch of critters that all have stuff going through their heads, huh? Which I think is always so provocative. There's so many humans on Earth and we think we're so special and so exceptional that only we can have thoughts, feelings, emotions. What really hit me about Diana's whole scientific life is animals are so much smarter than we give them credit for. It seems to be one of the really interesting points here is that there are many different ways that intelligence can develop in a brain. And one of the most remarkable ways is with these animals who live in the water, they live in three dimensions, they don't really have gravity, they don't have hands, they don't make tools the way we would or anything like that. And yet they clearly have this high level of intelligence and self-awareness. What I also found remarkable is the social aspects, that they they travel in these huge social groups, not unlike humans. They have to develop strategies for communication, for avoiding danger. They're also so playful, so that's what... They live in this alien world, and yet they sometimes seem so human. Smarter than we're smart enough to know about, perhaps. And that's why we still have this level of ignorance. Ignorance, yes, ignorance, absolutely. Ignorance is a production of Nautilus Magazine. The hosts are Stuart Firestein and Leslie Vossall. This episode was mixed and edited by Tom Veltri, with music by Lenny Williams of Load Bearing Music. John Steele is the executive producer.